What's up, young adults? Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad to see you guys this evening. Um, yeah, we are jumping into a brand new series called Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. Tonight's going to look a little bit different than what it has in the past. Um, typically, we'll do a couple of songs, and then we'll jump into a message, and then we'll close with a couple of songs. Tonight, the way that's going to look is um, we, are, we just went through three songs. Um, I'm going to do a, a topic intro, and then we're going to jump into small groups. So I just want to invite you guys to be a part of that. We want you to have uh, a voice here in the discussion for the, the topics that we're jumping into and the, and the things that we're talking about. So um, that being said, let me just jump into this really quickly because we've got a lot of material to go through. Also, um, Tonight, we're going to get in the weeds, so I hope you brought your weed whackers with you. Uh, we're going to get into some technical stuff, and uh, hopefully it's not too deep, but um, yeah, it's important stuff for us to think through and talk about. So we're jumping into the series called Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask, and the idea here is um, we're, we're jumping into the series. It's loosely based on a book by Mark Middleberg. He does deal with a lot of really controversial questions and issues, and I uh, just encourage you as we're going through the series um, to go ahead and pick up that book and maybe be reading through it. Because there's going to be things that I'm going to talk about that are in there. There's going to be some things that I'm not going to talk about that are in there. And uh, But we're also taking a little bit of a different direction. Okay, so what we're doing specifically with the series, if we go to our, our, our Insta, um, which is crossroads underscore young adults, we are going to have a place there where you can post questions anonymously. And what I want to hear is I want to hear what questions you've been asked what hard questions you've heard, but also maybe what questions you've had personally. What if church was the safest place on the planet to ask these hard questions and to, to struggle through maybe some doubt or questions that we have? What if, we, what if that was our reputation? Because unfortunately, that's not our reputation, right? And when I, see, when I say our, I mean our church, right? And when I say our church, I really mean you and me, right? Christians, the people in the building, because the building isn't afraid of the questions. It's us who are afraid of the tough, hard questions. And, and I know that I've been there, and I'm part of it. I know that I'm part of it. And we want to try to repair that because we want this to be a place where people can come and be authentic. If we can't be authentic, what are we doing? First Peter 3.15 says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Does that mean that we need to have the answers for all the questions that are out there? I think the answer to that is no. But when people are asking questions, I think they're not really interested in maybe the cold, hard information, right? Um, I think when a person brings a question, it's important for us to think about, we have two things to do. We have two things to do. Number one is Maybe we try our best to answer those questions. Just this afternoon, I was speaking with some, somebody, and they had a lot of really, really, really good questions, kind of dealing with the difference between Christianity and Catholicism and, and what's going on there. And, and um, you know, there were a couple of places where I was like, you know what, I'd love to research that further. And I didn't have all the answers, right? And, and that's okay. That's okay. We don't have to have all the answers. But what we absolutely have to remember is we have to remember to answer the questioner behind the question. We have to remember to answer the questioner behind the question. So as we proceed through this series, when we're jumping into a new question each week and we're kind of deep diving, 
I want you to keep that at the forefront of your mind. I want to challenge you to think about who is this person that might be behind the question, what experiences they've had, what hurts have they had, what doubts might they have had that have led to this question being a real thing in their life. Same thing for you. I have my own questions and my own doubts, believe it or not, if I can be authentic. And the reality is, and and where I've landed personally, is I believe that it's doubt that can lead to an authentic faith. Think about, you know, I grew up in the church, right? And for a lot of times I just went to church because my parents told me, but it wasn't until I started asking these questions for myself. And people around me are like, oh, man, are you doubting your faith? I'm like, maybe, I don't know if that's what that is. I'm just asking the hard questions. And as I really started to go face with the, you know, face those questions and really deal with them, try to ask and answer them for myself, I believe that's when I began to build an authentic faith. So tonight, we're going to jump into the question, why are you so sure God exists at all? I thought we would start light. Thought, thought we would start light. Uh, why are you so, so sh- man, I can't even talk. Why are you so sure that God exists at all? Um, as I was praying through, like, hey, where do, where do we start? What's our, our starting point for this? I was thinking about a lot of different possibilities. You know, is the Bible reliable? Is it trustworthy? Um, you know, just lots of different questions and topics that we could jump into for our first week. And then I remembered, I really feel like God placed this, um, this lady on my heart, a, pre, a coworker, and, uh, and her situation embodied this idea of not just answering the question, but answering the questioner. And uh, I really think this is a great place to start just because of how it really, uh, the interaction, the engagement with her played out. So we're going to jump into this question. Why are you so sure God exists? Now, what I'm going to share with you tonight um, comes from a lot of apologists, theologians, philosophers, um, and you will see, like, there's a lot of philosophy in here, so bear with me, okay? There's some technical stuff. I actually studied this as my master's program. I studied um, apologetics and ethics, basically philosophy of religion, and so I nerd out on this, so I apologize if I get really weird up here, but uh, this is exciting stuff for me. Last week, we jumped into a parable written by Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the prominent atheists of his day. And, uh, and still, actually, one of the most widely read and widely influential um, atheists. And um, this parable, what we looked at last week, uh, this madman comes out and he's, and he's echoing over and over and over, God is dead, God is dead. We have killed him. We are his murderers, is what he said over and over and what we spoke last week about was that Friedrich Nietzsche is not, he, he's actually, um, he's giving a cultural critique. He's actually predicting what he sees coming on the horizon with culture, within culture. And, and um, he's raising these questions. I don't know if you remember. I'm going to jump and, and read through just an excerpt of it really quickly that kind of pertains to what we're talking about tonight. And I quote, The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? He cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how do we do this? And this is what I want you to pay attention to. Listen to his language here. How could we drink up the sea? 
Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the horizon? What are we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. So that's hard to hear, right? I mean, it's hard to hear. And uh, what I think is interesting about Nietzsche's position here, he's, he's asking all of these really rhetorical questions. He's raising these issues. What he's really saying is that the murder of God is such an enormous deed that if the universe is actually godless, Everything, everything as we know it will have to be redefined. It's such a huge thing to, to, to uh, imagine that we've killed God in our culture that if that were reality, we'd have to redefine everything that we know about our reality. And if we take Nietzsche's inquiry, his platform, and we raise the same investigation, we can begin to see some of the intense philosophical issues that arise as we look at the, the, the possibility of a godless universe. And I would submit to you, as we weigh these problematic issues, and we're going to talk it out. So what, what I want to submit to you is that an atheistic worldview is unlivable. It's unthinkable and it's unlivable at its core. So we're going to look at a few problems. I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as we can. Uh, first and foremost, a godless universe has an intense problem with morality, with defining morality. How do you arrive at a moral law if you don't have a moral law giver? Maybe you've heard this before. How do you tell the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, moral and immoral? Now follow me here, and, and I just want to pose, if you were to ask a question, how can God exist if there's so much evil in the world? And, and we might even jump into that question in a future week. But in this question, it presupposes if there's evil, that there must also be good, right? If there's evil, there must also be good. And when you say there's such a thing as good and evil, are you not also assuming a moral law between which we can differentiate good and evil? How can we tell the difference between the two unless we have a measure by which to tell the difference? Bertrand Russell, a very um, popular, another influential atheist, wrote this. He wrote this to the observer. I do not know how to deal with the issue of morality. It haunts me. We're talking about a universal moral law. How can we tell the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, if there's, no found, if there's no place to ground that basis for decision? 
Now, um, C.S. Lewis wrote on this too. He said that we kind of live every single day as if a moral law actually exists. And the example that he gives in uh, Mere Christianity is he says, we live like this when we interact with other people. So we get on the train and we're just approaching our seat and we're getting ready to sit down and somebody jumps in before us and we get all offended. Like they've broken some kind of moral code. Or we're driving down the road and somebody cuts us off and we're so upset, we're screaming at our windshield because somebody has crossed this moral boundary, this unspoken, livable, assumed moral boundary, moral code. And for, to go further, if you espouse the existence of a moral law, would that not also um, entail a moral lawgiver? I believe that this can be a little bit of a leap, right? And we can talk this out. Does this make sense? Maybe in your group as you guys get together, does this make sense? Can we make this jump from a moral law to a moral lawgiver? And I'll tell you the challenge for the atheist. For the atheist, the challenge is how do we ground our moral law? You see, um, and this is the problem that they run into is they want to say that, yes, there is a universal moral law. Why? Because we know that some things are just right and some things are just wrong. We just know them. We know that. David Hume said it's, it's a feeling that is innate that emerges within us when we are in a moral situation. Kant said we, we arrive at it through reason and through logic. But both of them said it's innate, it is in us. And atheists struggle because this is a naturally transcendent thing to, to say where do we ground this in a naturalistic framework, a closed framework. Richard Dawkins, prominent evolutionary biologist, also an atheist, he said, uh, he, he gave us a solution. He says, hey, look, at the end of the day, maybe we just should reject this idea that anything is good or evil in the first place. Maybe we should just say that good and evil don't even exist. Here's what he said. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. No design, no purpose, no evil, no good. I want to pardon the crass illustration here, but my wife and I got to go um, and work with uh, this group of girls in Kenya who had been uh, the victim of being sold in the marketplace for sex. And um, as we got over there and we had anticipated this trip for a long time, we were really excited to get to work with them and love on them and just show them that they are daughters of the king. Um, we got there and we're, we're hugging them and, and they're just running up and we got to meet these two girls that were sisters. And um, one of the girls had a prosthetic and we found out later on that she was set on fire for resisting being sold, and her sister, um, when we met her, she had a, across her thigh um, a place where you could see where she had been tied up, actually, outside of their home, and men would come by from the neighborhood, and um, 
they would have their way with her, and she was tied up for so long that her muscle atrophied, and all you could see was what was left there, the skin and the bone, and it was just heartbreaking to see. And what I ask you this evening, Richard Dawkins, is that not evil? Can we not agree that that is evil? And as soon as we posit, yes, I don't care what culture you're from, I don't care what your contextual background, we can agree that this is evil. I think from there we go very quickly to a moral lawgiver because that's how we know it's evil. It's written on our hearts. So the moral solution in a godless universe is to deny that good and evil even exist. It's a real problem for them. It is an ongoing debate. You can look it up. Um, William Lane Craig debates a bunch of different um, guys, cosmologists, and, and they really hash it out. But it's a real thing, and, and I want to just encourage you to explore it, the moral issue there for atheism. Number two, they have an intense problem with meaning and hope. A godless universe has an intense problem with meaning and hope. And I want to read this to you really quick. These are lyrics from a rock song. Knowledge is a deadly friend. If no one sets the rules, the fate of all mankind I see is in the hands of fools. Confusion will be my epitaph. As I crawl a crock, a, wow. As I crawl a cracked and broken path. If we make it, we can all sit back and laugh, but I fear tomorrow I'll be crying. In a world where no one sets the rules, what reigns is chaos. Um, Steve Turner wrote this poem called Creed, and I, I urge you to look it up. It's really long. I'm just going to read you the subtext on this uh, particular poem. So he, he writes this all out, and what he's writing is he's illustrating the contradiction between the way that we live and what we say that we believe in a world that, that we're saying can't have a God in it. In a world that we're saying that can't have a God, he's saying we live one way, but we believe another thing. We live as if these morals exist. We live as if these, these things are there and they're assumed, but then when it comes to putting our beliefs on the line, we say, no, no, there's no God. And this is where he ended. He said, if chance be the father of all flesh, meaning if we live in a purely naturalistic framework, if, if all that there is to our reality is what we see, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. Talking about chance. Chance has become our God, right? He's our creator. He's how we got started in a naturalistic framework. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. In a godless universe, there is no intrinsic meaning, no intrinsic hope. It's a really strong issue. And so I thought we would start by imagining a universe where God doesn't exist. And what it turns out is that there are some serious philosophical issues when we, when we face it head on. Jumping into 
um, an argument for God's existence. The cosmological argument suggests strongly that a self-existent, transcendent entity exists. Okay, this is where we're going to kind of get into the weeds. You guys ready for this? (laughs) Follow me closely, okay? However concrete physical reality is sectioned, okay, whatever we do with it, the result will be a state of affairs which owes its being to something other than itself. You follow me? Nothing that has come into being, nothing that exists can explain its own existence. So let's say I come to you with an orange and you can cut it up, slice it up, whatever, do whatever you want with it. If I have only the orange, I can't explain, it can't explain its existence. Okay, step two, that very physical state, no matter how inclusive, has a necessary condition that these conditions had to be fully developed before it could come into existence. So number one, no existing thing can explain its own existence. And number two, there had to be a, a cause. Something caused it to exist. Now this is true for the orange, right? But when we go all the way back and we trace back a series of causes and we look at the orange tree, The orange tree might be able to explain the cause of the orange, but it can't explain its own existence. The reality is is that you can backtrack as far as you want, and nothing in this universe that has come into existence is self-existent, or it explains its own existence. Very important. This is important because when we go back and we go to the beginning of the universe, We have to ask, the universe exists, and therefore can we not say that the the universe must have a cause? Something has caused it to come into existence. Something has caused it to be. And all of these things that exist have come somewhere from some self-existent thing, entity, which is not physical. A seminary student sat down for a doctoral exam, and one of the questions was, God is perfect, explain. Uh, Who's in college here? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, so you guys know. Um, Anybody used a blue book before? Y'all know the blue books? Yeah, terrible, right? Um, So these are the essay questions, right? And and they're tough because, you know, you could really screw up, and, and what I tended to do was just ramble on and on and on because I was really just throwing down fluff, and my prof totally knew it. Um, But this guy, question was, God is perfect, explain. And he wrote one sentence. He is the only entity in existence where the reason for whose existence is in himself. That's it. That's it. The unmoved mover. The beginning the one that started it all because he exists outside of, outside of time and space and he, he um, has it come into being in the way that physical reality has. He can be that reason that our universe exists. Psalm 8, 3 through 4 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place, 
What is mankind that you are mindful of them? I love that. I love that. God created the heavens and the earth, and he put the stars in the sky, and yet he is mindful of us. I think that says so much about the character and the heart of our God. So just moving forward just a little bit, the argument from design. The argument from design. We see a world, a universe that is so finely tuned that if we look at the world that has been finely tuned, we see certain characteristics. We see minds. We see bodies. We see relationships. We see these things. We see order, actually. We see lots and lots and lots of order. And what C.S. Lewis argued vehemently in mere Christianity is that if we look at it, the conclusion that we can confidently come to is that behind all of creation had to have been a personal mind. Had to have been a personal mind. So we're just going to recap really quick because I know that was a lot. In a godless universe, we've got two major problems. Actually, there's a bunch more, but we only had time for two. No objective morality and no meaning and no hope. Two big issues. In a universe that we can observe, that we live in, the cosmological state of affairs that strongly suggests an unmoved mover, a beginning, a transcendent being that's outside of time and space that started it. And in the precision Observable in the universe strongly suggests a personal mind. For me, as I was really struggling with these questions, these were really important. And, uh, and I hope as you're here this evening, if you um, are, are a committed believer, Christ follower, I hope that you have that thing, right, that thing, and maybe you can talk about it in your group that is, man, this is the reason I know that God exists. Maybe it's a miracle that he performed in your life. Maybe it was a personal experience. And when you go back to, back to that, when things get really hard, you think about it and you say, okay, that's why I know my God is real. So getting back to that challenge to keep the questioner in mind, this coworker of mine, I remember walking into my place of work and getting to meet her, and uh, everybody knew me at work as being, you know, they called me the priest, but actually I was just in Bible school, so whatever. But uh, as I got to meet her and I got to know her, she told me really quickly, she said, by the way, I don't believe God exists, and uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's just where I'm at. You can't convince me otherwise, and uh, I just really sensed there was a lot of pain behind that. So one day... She asked me, she said, how are you so sure that God is out there, that he's there? You know, I could have sat down, I could have given her the philosophical jargon. I could have maybe made a really compelling argument. But what I found out by getting to know her is that this young lady suffered the pain of a teenage pregnancy when she was 16 in a co really conservative Christian community, and they just shamed her. They just shamed her. In fact, they shamed her so bad, they kicked her out of the church. Her parents kicked her out of the house. She's 16, homeless, and pregnant. And she lost her baby. All of a sudden, this question, how are you so sure God exists? 
makes a lot of sense because she told me if these people represent your God, I don't want anything to do with them. And I don't want to even acknowledge that he exists. And it wasn't until I sat down with her and cried with her on the day that would have been her son's birthday that I really saw the person behind the question. You see, when you're dealing with this question, one thing you always have to think about is, is this person asking because they're just curious about information or is there a, a deep personal hurt or pain that may be driving this position? And I think more often than not, it's the latter. So we have to always keep that in mind. So why are you so sure God exists at all? There's a lot of arguments for it. And yes, I can give you a lot of information, but at the end of the day, what I told her was that we have a Savior who knows your pain because he felt that pain on the cross as he gave his life. I don't know if that was a comfort to her. I don't know if she um, connected with that, but to me, to acknowledge that we have a personal God, a personal Savior who's present with us in our pain, in our experiences, and knows what it's like to live and deal with this life. That's a huge reason why I know God exists too. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into small group. Father, thank you for this challenge. I hear all the time people say, well, if, if God was really smart, he would make himself easier to find. And I don't know that that's true. I mean, yeah, we're thinking about it in our own logic. Yeah, that would make sense. But God, I believe and I trust that you know. Father, if you just made yourself obvious, we wouldn't have to have faith. We wouldn't have to believe that you're there. So God, I just pray that you would help us to really lean into this conversation, help us to really um, ask these hard questions. Maybe this is a question we've asked personally and struggled with personally. And God, I pray that as we jump into these small groups that we would just hear each other. Father, that we would engage with each other and that we would um, practice some humility and some, um, some safety as we um, engage with each other. Help us to know you more. Help us to be able to express what we believe and why we believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.